Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is on emerging markets, debt, and currency. I'm Amanda Wilson, the head of relationship management for the North America Institutional Business, and with me today are Felipe Yanis, head of emerging market debt macro research, and Diana Amol, senior portfolio manager in emerging market debt local currency at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to Insights. Thanks. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. Do you want to get us started by setting the stage with the macro backdrop that has really left institutional investors in the place they are today with their EMD allocations? Sure. I think it's hard to put it in sort of a short answer, and it's useful to look back to what's probably the most visible point where allocations went to the underweight that they are today. I think taper tantrum comes to mind. This was, you recall, back in May of 2013 when it appeared that the Fed was restarting policy normalization and as a result, rates would start moving much higher. Ultimately, that did not happen, as we well know, but the reality is for emerging markets, it did prove to be a shock. Very quickly, you had outflows from the various emerging market asset classes. People discounted very quickly that this would become a credit crunch, and sure enough, you would end up in the typical sort of boomba cycle with defaults materializing soon after. You had spreads widening north of 150 basis points, local yields more than 200 basis points, and EMFX sort of as a group depreciating anywhere between 30 and 40 percent. But as time went by, of course, we did not get this policy normalization, and we got to a point where, in fact, doubts about growth and inflation in the developed world led to lower and lower yields in that space. So as a result, emerging markets started to look sort of more out of line, and investors started to really question whether they should, in fact, be underweight as they were, or in fact, start looking at this space again. I think that's the setup of where we are today. So let's go ahead and dive deeper into that in a portfolio construction context. How should an institutional investor really think about EMD in their portfolio, whether that be strategic or tactical allocations or both? Diana, you want to take that question? Yeah, sure. I think that is the underlying question right now that investors, given the backdrop that Philippe has given us of people being very underweight EM post taper tantrum, the question investors are asking is, where does EM fit into my portfolio now? How do we start looking at this asset class, given we're underweight in most cases? I think, you know, there's three arguments you can make for this. As a portfolio manager, you want to be diversified. Given the huge valuation we're seeing in EM, what we've started seeing is less and less correlation to core markets, unless it's in an extreme shock scenario. So you take January, for instance, you had growth fears, growth concerns weighing on equities and a lot of the high yield markets, whereas EM local currency, there was valuation and actually rates were rallying because as you remove the fear of Fed tightening, you're able to look at the case for EM and actually see that we're already pricing a lot of risks in EM. We're coming from a point where commodity markets have been very low. There's a lot of bearishness priced in. That's the long answer. I think in short, investors need to look at it as one, there's a value argument to be made for EM. Markets have sold off a lot in the last three years. For a value investor, EM looks attractive. The second one is there's a yield argument to be made for EM, particularly in this 
world of low negative yields in core markets. EM yields look very attractive. The GBI index, for instance, yields around 6.2%, which is quite high today. You don't see those sorts of yields everywhere. And, you know, say for insurance investors, that's attractive in trying to get some yield into their portfolios. So there's a yield argument. And then I think the third perspective would be just to look at EM as a play on perhaps a rebound in or a correction in the commodity price that we've seen a huge drop in commodity prices in the last few years. Investing in some of these EM markets actually gives you some exposure without actually taking the higher beta of holding the underlying commodities. So there's a lot of interesting studies. You can look at somewhere like Russia as an oil play, Chile, for instance, as a play on metal prices. For investors, there's a number of reasons. Look at EM as a way to gain yield, to gain yield at an attractive value that gives you exposure to assets that are rebounding. The examples that we've looked at, looking at Russia, for instance, as an oil play or even Colombia, etc., you can't just buy the benchmark and sit. I think this is where active management comes into its own. You know, EM got beaten up, and in some cases, rightly so. The recovery is far along in a lot of those markets that you can actually start to think about buying things in value terms, but not all the markets have adjusted far enough. And this is why I think it's an environment where you buy EM, but not all EM markets are equal. And that's why it's important to pick active management. If you're coming back into this space, pick the investors who've been in the market throughout the cycle and know where there's actually value. And as an institutional investor, scope and scale, or maybe depth and scale, are important as well, given the ticket sizes, the mandate sizes institutional investors would need to make to asset classes like this. Can you comment further on the dynamics of the tradable EMD markets and whether they can accommodate institutional investors? So if you look at the indices, right, that JP Morgan has, so it would be MBIG, GBI, and SEMBI, respectively the sovereign Hard currency, the local debt, and the corporate, they represent as a group about $3.3 trillion in assets under management in the various sort of forms. There are some constraint forms where the MBIG, which is hard currency sovereign debt, is about $1.1 trillion. Local debt is about $1 trillion, and corporate is about $1.2 trillion. I think the market depth, and this is just broadly speaking, taking G10 markets, liquidity isn't what it has been historically across fixed income, across equity markets. And a lot of this has to do with the constraints that banks face on their balance sheets and the ability of market makers to actually hold on to risks. That said, EM as an asset class is maturing. There's a lot more interest, a bigger variety of investors coming in. So if you think about Asian clients who in the past wouldn't look at EM when core rates offered such interesting yields, they've ventured into EM post-taper tantrum in a meaningful manner. One book of business, you have a lot of, you know, when you look at the EM world, the AUM has actually been growing across the board. I mean, within this, obviously, there's differences. So hard currency, emerging market, it's probably the most owned and the most traded one for external investors. It's a market that's very liquid. We have institutional clients who are able to come in in size and invest, you know, subject to general market conditions. So unless there's a taper tantrum type shock, which is externally driven, there isn't an issue around liquidity. 
within EM itself, there's bigger markets and there's smaller markets. So you look at a sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, those are much smaller markets. And again, this would be reflected in their sizes in the benchmarks. But even on a total return basis, I think this is where active management comes to its own because there's an understanding of what the liquidity is and what the liquidity constraints are in each of these markets. In terms of just continuous markets, I'd say local markets have an advantage over perhaps external and corporate dollar debt because they have a backstop with the local investors. That said, it's not all local markets that have a very mature local investor base, but a lot of the markets that we see, for instance, Turkey is a good example to take here. We had a coup in Turkey in July. In the past, this would have seen huge liquidity gaps. But what we've seen is actually the local investor base has grown and local investors are willing to provide liquidity when offshore investors step back from the market. So the vault spikes that we used to see in EM five to ten years ago are much lower now. So you have a backstop there from an investor base that's willing to keep trading irrespective of external market conditions. I think, Diana, this point is very important. It's the local markets that will provide the solution organically. This is where you really can deepen a lot uh, the curves and the local investor as it grows through pension funds and others will provide a source of demand. And a metric perhaps is useful here, pre-taper tantrum, Global bond funds, as one possible investor base, had allocated about 14% of their assets to emerging markets debt. Today, it's under 10%. And as a group, they represent $1 trillion. They were the natural ones that will be sort of searching for this type of product. And I think in the local market, seeing that emerging markets did not have a bust out of this cycle, but rather a very wide business cycle will reassure that you can continue to invest without this constant sort of negative default cycle that used to be the path of emerging markets. Philippe, what else from a fundamental and technical perspective makes EM attractive or unattractive across the different markets you cover? I think at a very fundamental level, so even before going to the more current situation, you have to acknowledge that as a group, this represents almost half of the world's GDP. But as an invested asset, it represents probably something in the order of what I just cited, 10% or less of allocations, right? So there seems to be an imbalance there that if you were even to be an underweight, let's say, relative to its share of GDP, allows for growth sort of organically, right? Not to mention that when you really look at emerging markets over long horizons, so when you think about a global asset allocator over sort of a very long time, these are the regions that are providing growth, demographics, pickup in yield, all the sort of things that a developed market, which is sort of having difficulty finding yield, will find attractive. When you bring it to sort of more short-term horizon, certainly the current backdrop of negative yields that Diana alluded to, which now represents about 30% of the GBI of the global bonds are in negative territory, is a powerful sort of push force to go towards emerging market debt. That's a near-term factor which remains attractive unless you're willing to support the scenario that this is about to revert sometime soon. That's not our core view. From the EM side, you have some indication that the fundamental story is improving. Growth is starting to rebound. Arguably, much of this owes to Brazil and Russia coming out of recession. But nonetheless, the region is no longer sort of contracting. It's starting to pick up its growth pickup relative to the developed world. So that in itself is an interesting element, the fact that EM seems to be leaving behind this very negative narrative of the last couple of years. 
Our last one is technicals. You have tremendous technicals on the dead. Part has to do with the bad last couple of years where, you know, you had to deliver and not really were issuing a whole lot. But the situation is one where today you're probably flat in terms of the net issuance, that is, the issuance that you are targeting to do versus what's coming back to investors in the form of external debt service. So that's very supportive. In the case of EM corporates, in fact, it's actually negative, meaning you get more reflows rather than issuance. You put it all together, and even though you're not looking at a sort of V-shaped, commodity-led boom for emerging markets, Certainly, it emerges on a relative value in a very good place when you combine fundamentals, valuation, and technicals. Something we haven't talked much about is currency, which can erode or enhance that return and yield. Let's spend a little bit of time there, Diana. Yeah, sure. I mean, EM currencies, I think, are part of the reason why EM has had such a bad rep the last few years. Just the volatility in EM effects historically has been quite high, particularly when you look at G10 currencies. That said, what we're starting to see now is actually some normalization of the CM vol. And again, that has to do with the fact that the fundamental story, as Philippe has pointed out, is improving. So you have commodities which had been a big driver of EM flows in the past starting to bottom out, perhaps not recovering, but at least not falling anymore. But also within the EM economies themselves, there's been a genuine adjustment in the external balances. So what we'd seen historically was external balances in EM had deteriorated. Part of it was perhaps overheating economies where you had imports not keeping up with exports. And so the economy's current accounts looked very, very vulnerable to shocks. But now we're at the point where a lot of these economies have adjusted quite sharply. Think about Brazil entering into the worst recession they've had in recent years. What that has led to is a real contraction in domestic demand. And as a result, the imports have fallen quite sharply. It's been a negative shock to the economy, but it's actually helped them in terms of just the external position, meaning that the currency has been trading much more stable now. In fact, even relative to when you look at G10, you look at something like the yen, the moves on the real have been much more well-behaved compared to G10 peers. Similar story can be made for somewhere like Indonesia. Again, same story where you have a slowing economy, which has helped the external adjustment along. We think South Africa might be the next one where you start to see as the economy contracts, actually the current account might improve going forward. And that will also be aided by this bounce in commodity prices. Underlying that is a genuine at least The external balances are improving, and in some of these economies, growth is holding steady. So Indo is one where that is the case. South Africa and Brazil are not yet at that point, but we expect that as the currencies find some stability, economy bottoms out, commodities carry on the way they are, we might get to a turn on the growth cycle there. So for now, we think external vulnerabilities for EM currencies are much lower than they've been historically, meaning that the currencies are much better behaved and well-positioned to bear shocks than what they've been historically. I think the second point to make on the EMFX story is, again, the yield that we've seen in response to the shock on the dollar that we saw last year and a lot of the EM currencies, the commodity falling, in response to this shock, central banks were forced to hike rates quite aggressively. And now as the economies have slowed down, partly as a result of that, and also as the tightening feeds through the economy, they might have opportunities to start to unwind. But the starting point is there's a lot of carry in these EM currencies. 
So for an investor, what you want to look at when you're thinking about EMFX is, one, what does the external balance look like? You don't want to be buying EMFX for countries that haven't adjusted enough and where the external balance is still vulnerable to shocks. And then two, what protection is offered in terms of valuation versus its own history and versus peers, but also in terms of the carry that the currency provides. So you look for currency that looks relatively cheap, that has a decent yield on offer, and the external balance looks much more favorable. In that framework, think about somewhere like Brazil, for instance, or Indonesia, and even to an extent India. They all start to look much more interesting. Turkey's external balance had started to adjust, but we're starting to see some deterioration now. South Africa is another one that might be coming into the radar once they get these ratings review in December behind them. So there's a lot of opportunities in EMFX as a standalone asset class within the broader EM complex, but also for investors who are looking at local markets. Historically, they've wanted to hedge out the risk. What we're starting to say is, in some of these cases, there's a case to actually take the bond risk along with the currency risk. Well, to bring all that together, Philippe, What are the key opportunities and risks in today's markets? And how can an institutional investor really capture that alpha across what is obviously a very complex opportunity set? Okay, on the risk front, I can think of two main risks to be mindful of. One comes from the EM, which is China, of course. Our sense that the concern in the marketplace of imminent hard landing in China is overstated. The government has willingness and ability to continue to put unsustainable policies in our view, but nonetheless effective in the near term to put a floor on growth. However, as time goes by, this will result in lower growth for China and a higher probability of financial accidents. So that's one that we will continue to watch as a headwind. Outside of the M, however, there's another risk, which is that of rising term premium. The central banks have acted to really depress term premium that has supported yield compression. And as you realize from everything we've said, This is part of the bid for emerging markets. So if you were to have a very adverse or very violent adjustment in that regard, one that is not in line with a positive recovery in growth in the developed markets, then indeed it could become a risk of shock that would no doubt also hit emerging market debt. I guess thrown into that, what I would add would be just the odd idiosyncratic story. So you do have the odd attempt of a coup or random political development, but that's the nature of emerging markets, right? And that's why it becomes important to have active managers who do understand which markets are vulnerable to these idiosyncratic shocks. I think there's still two elements to a positive story sort of from a market perspective. There's a beta and there's an alpha. The beta has been... The trade we've had so far this year, primarily, it was triggered by two catalysts, possibly. First one was the creation of value in February, when this view that China may be hard landing actually took EM spreads to near 500 basis points over, a level not seen since the 2008 crisis. Clearly, when you looked around, it didn't seem to fit unless you actually believed that China was about to hard land. And that was not our view and ultimately not what happened. So value creation was open, and that's the beginning of sort of a beta trade. A second catalyst, I think, in that came in the form of Brexit, which ended up playing opposite to what most of us thought, right? Brexit did materialize, but ultimately was not a negative risk event, but a positive one because it deployed 
a policy response that was very risk-friendly, at the same time that the real economy impact of Brexit is still to be realized, if at all. So that really prompted the search for yield and the two factors, evaluation and the search for the yield, really took form in this beta trade that may still have legs given the technical points that I alluded to earlier. But I do agree that increasingly will become more of an alpha world. And this has to do with the duration of the rally. As this happens, assets move in a correlated fashion, which may not be aligned with idiosyncratic factors on the ground. So from that perspective, we spend a lot of time in our team to try to really drill into the differentiation, the differences across various countries in the indices. And especially we leverage our analysts on the ground. When Diana was talking about the case of Brazil, this came to mind again to me because Brazil has been one country that we have favored across assets. It started by the opportunity created by a very serious crisis there, a fiscal crisis tied with a widespread corruption scandal that sort of dovetailed in a political crisis, which meant the whole thing wasn't being resolved and sort of was feeding in itself. With the high-frequency contact that we have with our local analysts and their sourcing of information locally, we started to, however, have a sense that probably assets were incorporating more than enough risk for what seemed to be the worst of the political crisis having materialized and likely a resolution becoming more visible to the market. And so we started to really position across corporates, in the case of Petrobras, in external debt and in local debt. In fact, these are positions we still like today. And in that, really concentrate our risk. So from this perspective, I think we will continue to do this as we migrate from more beta to alpha. There's also the theme of hard currency having led most of the initial rally, and then these other asset classes that have lagged to some extent, corporates and local debt, maybe next stage beneficiaries, right? These are all dimensions that we are exploring as likely opportunities to really capture the value in EM as the year progresses and we go into the next year. Terrific. Diana, Philippe, thank you for your time and your insight on this fascinating market. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan Insights. If you found our insights useful, you can find more podcasts on other relevant fixed income themes on iTunes or on our website, www.jpmorgan.com slash institutional slash fixed income. The views contained herein are not to be taken as an advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction. Nor is it a commitment from JP Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given, and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks, the value of investments, and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield may not be a reliable guide to future performance. 
J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other EU jurisdictions by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe SARL. In Hong Kong by JF Asset Management Limited or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In India by J.P. Morgan Asset Management India Private Limited. In Singapore by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited. In Taiwan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, in Brazil by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada for institutional clients' use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated and in the United States by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services Incorporated and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated, both members of FINRA, SIPC, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2016, J.P. Morgan Chasen Company. All rights reserved. Recorded September 14, 2016.